Hello and welcome to Macro Minutes. My name is Jason Daw and I'm the head of North America Rate Strategy and your host. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Two weeks ago, the main themes that were dominating financial markets was inflation and central bank uh, hawkishness. And this was pushing up tightening expectations and also uh, long-end yields. Inflation remains a key theme for markets, uh, being exacerbated by the Russia-Ukraine situation, uh, sanctions, and the growing frictions between the West and Russia, uh, resulting in fairly sticky pricing for central bank uh, rate hikes in uh, most economies. Uh, But risk assets, they are under pressure. Uh, Notably, we've seen a decent wobble in equities uh, yesterday and the risk aversion is sweeping through markets, um, has pushed uh, long-end yields lower. Um, Some funding stress has uh, become visible. Uh, Volatility is elevated, and in some cases, like uh, prices today, uh, the price action can be parabolic. Uh, So to help us navigate this uh, rapidly evolving situation in geopolitics, economies, and asset markets, we have a full slate of experts joining our call today. Um, Halima is going to be speaking on uh, geopolitics, Peter on the impact of the Russia invasion on European markets, politics and policy, uh, ELSA on the euro and spreading uh, risk-off dynamics in commodity currencies, Tom on what it means, if anything, for the Fed, Blake on U.S. funding stress and stress in the trending treasury market, uh, Simon on the BOC path in QT, and myself on asset market correlations and the tug of war between uh, flight to safety and inflation. Uh, so with that, uh, over to uh, Halima to kick it off. Great. Good morning. I mean, we are clearly watching the situation in Russia, Ukraine. Russia is now the most heavily sanctioned country in the world, passing Iran and North Korea. European governments have basically still expressed extreme reservation about going down the route of energy sanctions or an energy embargo. The United States is moving, though, in the direction of a formal oil embargo pushed by the U.S. Congress. The United States is not a major importer of Russian oil, but we think it sends very important signals to the market about the direction of travel on sanctions and leaving the door open for a much more punitive path when it comes to energy as Russia continues to wage such a gruesome war in Ukraine. Nonetheless, even without formal energy sanctions, the self-sanctioning process continues to gain steam. We just had overnight the decision of Shell to essentially say they will be doing no business with Russia. They took so much criticism for the decision to take those discounted Russian barrels on Friday. And so we really do estimate now that what we could be looking at is a buyer strike that could lead to three to four million barrels of Russian oil exports coming off the market. There are essentially very few companies, trading houses, shipping companies that are willing to take the product or move the product. This really does lead to questions now about who can fill what looks like it's going to be a very significant Russian export gap when it comes to oil exports. The White House has been making trips to countries like Venezuela, talking about potentially removing sanctions from that country. That could lead to maybe three to 100 to 600,000 additional barrels coming onto the market. But those talks are in very early stages and Venezuela's oil sector will require billions of dollars in new investment to get really back up on its feet. Hence, what we would highlight to clients, the most important strategic outreach from the Biden administration will be to the government of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the country that is sitting on installed spare capacity. There is a potential for Saudi Arabia to be maybe able to ramp up by 2 million barrels in 30 to 60 days. 
so far the Saudis have said they are not willing or you know they're reluctant to essentially break the OPEC plus EZIC formula. However, if the Biden administration were serious about an outreach in terms of crafting a new security framework with Saudi Arabia, providing additional defense support to Saudi Arabia, potentially help with a civilian nuclear program, but also President Biden would actually have to call the Saudi crown prince. He would potentially even have to visit the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for Saudi Arabia to basically bring more barrels onto the market. But if Saudi Arabia does the $2 million, we are essentially talking about a situation where we will have almost no spare capacity buffer. That is the situation we're in right now. In terms of the geopolitics, one thing we'd be clearly watching for in this conflict would be any signs that Russia would be moving the conflict to an actual NATO member. Baltic states have expressed extreme concern about the situation, the potential threat to them. If there was any type of Russian action involving Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, or any NATO member, but particularly the Baltic states are the ones in clear peril, that would essentially internationalize the conflict because of Article 5 obligations. And so happy to answer any questions on this, but I will hand it over now to the next speaker. Okay, thank you, Halima, um, for setting the uh, stage on the geopolitical side and the oil market. Uh, now over to Peter for the uh, region that's being uh, most impacted by the Russia-Ukraine war. Thank you, everyone, uh, and good morning. So what I have in mind um, for my three allocated minutes um, is I will speak, first of all, through of the transmission channel into our economies. Secondly, I'll speak about the central bank reaction. And then thirdly, I want to give a medium-term outlook of what it means for the euro area in particular um, and for the EU politically. So first of all, when we look at the transmission channels into our economies, um, they are quite widespread. The direct impact trade with Russia trade with Ukraine is actually manageable. Um, when you look sort of at the, the trade balance, we think it's probably going to cost the euro area only about 0.2, 0.3 of GDP. So that's really manageable, even if you add sort of another 0.2 on top of the slowing growth um, from the direct neighbors in Eastern Europe, Poland, Hungary, and so on. Much more important are the indirect channels. And here I would mention three. The first one is the financial channel. Uh, we're seeing European banks to a not, not negligible uh, amount being invested in the region, and they're having to take losses. And we've seen sort of particularly bank equity, bank um, credit spreads being under pressure. So there's a significant financial tightening coming through here. The second one, um, I would argue, um, is one that is probably the most opaque. Um, we, we find out now that there are quite a few input goods going into the European production chains that are simply not available at the moment. And some of the European automakers, for instance, have already halted production um, and will probably find out over the next couple of weeks that there are more and more um, goods that are missing into the production chain. It's very difficult to quantify what that means and how long it will last, but it's certainly something to watch. And then there is the absolute most important channel that I would highlight, which is the consumption channel. When you think about our oil prices are obviously going up, our gas prices are going up significantly more than they're going up in North America. And on top of that, we have a significant rise in food prices. And one of the big contrasts in Europe contra in, in comparison to, um, uh, to North America is that our wages are not really rising. So it's quite conceivable that um, disposable income, particularly of the lower income brackets, 
that have to consume food, that have to consume oil and gas in various forms in their uh, in their consumption basket, uh, is basically going to be shot to pieces. So discretionary spending is going to come down, and we reckon that this will really um, decimate our consumption. So how big is the impact going to be? We have just taken a um, downgrade of our euro area GDP round about to the tune of 1% of GDP, which will which would bring us very close, just not into a recession. But clearly, the risk is to the downside. Now, the second big question that comes is, what are central banks going to do with that? Because the other side of the ledger, of course, is that this is increasing inflation. And central banks, as Jason was just saying uh, when he started the call, were in a tightening environment already because of high inflation. But now you have even higher inflation on the one hand, but lower growth on the other. So you've got a stagflationary impulse. We think here the response is probably going to be a little bit different between the ECB on the one hand and uh, the Bank of England, the two big central banks. The ECB, which meets on Thursday, we think will not be in a position to high grades. They were supposed in this, uh, this meeting that's coming up to um, announce an end of the asset purchase program, which they probably won't be doing. And we have taken out all of our rate hikes for this year. Now, the Bank of England is slightly different because they were very concerned about inflation. We think the UK is slightly less exposed to the situation for various reasons. Um, and therefore, we think that the Bank of England will probably continue hiking, certainly in March. We think they'll probably take another step later in the year to 1%. But we're still significantly below where the market sees them, which is about another 125 basis points of rate hikes till the end of this year. So the big question, that's also the big question that I'm getting from pretty much every client that I'm speaking to is, which side of this impact is the central bank's main focus, inflation or growth? And I think, we, I hope we'll get an answer to that, at least from the ECB on Thursday. Now, I want to make one last point before I let you go. There is also, in my mind, a positive outcome um, if we can say that in the current situation as far as the EU is concerned. <clears throat> because what we have is we have, I think, a much stronger unity now. You have, we had before a northwest, uh, sorry, north-south conflict. That's probably going to fall by the wayside because the political um, um, threat to anti, from anti-European, anti-EU forces is going to come down. We had an east-west conflict. That's probably going to come down because the western countries will have to support the eastern countries, Poland, Hungary, much more financially to cope with the refugee situation. Um, and you can already see sort of the external threat is galvanizing forces. And there was an article today, and I think this is a story that will come through, that uh, the European um, funds that are already out there could either be increased or could be, could be used for defense as well as energy policies going forward. So that's a medium-term story, but at least there's some silver lining for the, uh, for the EU. I'll probably leave it here, um, but there's much more to say, and I could probably fill um, a half an hour to an hour with my thoughts um, uh, alone. So, but I'll leave it here and hand over to Elsa. Okay, thank you, Peter. Um, so now over to Elsa to speak about um, FX, which has finally started to get interesting after a long period where the asset class uh, wasn't reacting, uh, at least to moves in the rates market. So, um, Elsa, over to you. Uh, thanks, thanks, um, Jason. Uh, I want to say, ouch, I always thought FX was interesting, but maybe that's fair. Maybe we haven't been that interesting for some time. Um, and yet, for the last few weeks, we've really seen the euro being used as the most liquid hedge for a lot of the fears out there in the market. Um, but I think we're at an interesting moment right now. 
If you look at year-to-date performance, um, no surprise, the ruble is the worst performing currency. Um, and then the EU satellites, you know, the likes of Poland and Hungary and um, to a large degree Sweden, um, and then not far behind the euro. Uh, and all of those down around 10% or close to 10% um, against the US dollar. But in the last 24 hours, we've seen an interesting pivot in markets. And euro has actually been holding up reasonably well despite hearing the Russian energy minister and deputy prime minister Novak threaten to cut off gas supplies to Europe for the first time. And again, you know, he said no decision has been made, but clearly it's there on the table. So I want to make um, just three points. The first is that while we are watching energy prices, and in in particular long-dated contracts, if this is going to spill into a broader global growth slowdown, then it will be higher commodity prices, in particular the high cost of energy that drives it. In the very early stages of the crisis, this was impacting the very short-dated contracts in in crude and in gas prices. It was much more of a kind of European impact. Um, But if this is going to spill over into something broader, it will come from energy prices. If that happens, then actually it's all about what is left to price out in terms of hikes. And in that regard, the euro doesn't look too bad in that it's a central bank that was never expected to tighten aggressively to start with. The second point I want to make, and and this comes from someone who used to work for the European Commission and I followed the Eurozone crisis firsthand. So I'm very painfully aware that it always takes a crisis to force action from the EU. Um, And those of you who listened to our macro call 10 days ago, a week ago, will have heard me say the same. You know, after the first, wave of sanctions which looked very underwhelming Um, it was followed then by that second wave over the weekend and then the selective cutting off from swift because again it always takes the crisis to force those bigger previously unthinkable decisions well on that front we've heard this morning that the eu is considering mutualization of liabilities massive stimulus package of energy and defense spending Again, still a long way from this becoming reality, but we do have a leader summit later this week. And again, it will just be causing people a little bit of pause for thought. Um, and then finally, we have the ECB coming up this week, as Peter mentioned. Um, there's very little that they can do, and fully on board with Peter's outlook that they're certainly not going to be aggressively hiking rates in the face of higher inflation, given all the concerns around demand. Um, but we do expect to hear questions on the currency. And while it's a long stretch to imagine any kind of outright intervention, certainly nowhere near there there yet, um, I wouldn't be surprised to hear a little bit of jawboning on the currency because it certainly wouldn't hurt the ECB to have a slightly stronger euro in the face of these imported inflationary pressures. So all of that to say, while it's made a lot of sense shorting euro, we've actually been long cad against the Swedish krona, which for some people it's like a posh version, as one client put it, of our uh, of EuroCAD. Um, we took that trade off um, at the tail end of last week, and we've actually rolled into a tactical Euro sterling long. Um, and again, for those interested, there's further details in our published research and in our trade of the week out yesterday. I'll leave it there and pass over back to you, Jason. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, the first topic I want to discuss is asset market correlations and specifically the high co-movement that we've been seeing between um, you know, equities, credit, bond yields, gold, and the dollar, at least um, against the euro, uh, ever since the uh, Russian invasion on the 24th of February. So, you know, during major risk events, uh, this type of trading pattern is not unusual. And I do suspect that this uh, strong co-movement uh, will probably remain the case for at least, um, you know, some time until there's a clearer path towards uh, Russian de-escalation 
and diminished uh, tail risks of direct uh, NATO-Russian uh, conflict. But until then, uh, asset markets, they will be hostage to news flow and changes in the uh, geopolitical uh, risk premia and uh, probably less influenced by top-down macro um, or uh, idiosyncratic drivers. And frustratingly, uh, this type of market setup uh, creates uh, kind of an unfavorable trading environment for many strategies, uh, not least um, directional macro. The uh, second topic I wanted to discuss is the rapid uh, increase in oil prices, when this has occurred previously, and what it's meant for uh, economic uh, activity. So, um, you know, oil prices, they've doubled in the past year. Uh, this is a rare occurrence. And to put that in perspective, this is only the seventh time since 1970, uh, looking at uh, quarterly data. Now, in four of the cases, uh, spike was associated with armed conflict in oil regions, uh, so in 1973, 1980, 1990, and now the uh, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. I think importantly, in previous episodes, when oil prices um, have doubled over a one-year time frame, it's typically either been associated with economic activity weakening in the future or exacerbating a downturn already underway. So it's tempting to think that the market might be focusing on uh, weaker oil-induced growth as a reason why uh, long-end uh, bond yields are lower in recent weeks in places like Canada and the U.S., but that's probably not the important driver in my opinion. Which leads me to my third observation, which is a tug-of-war between inflation and uh, flight to safety. So um, historically, we see more times than not, when we have these big oil price spikes, it has led to higher bond yields at least until uh, the growth slowdown or recession uh, starts. But uh, since the Russian invasion began, uh, bond yields, at least in Canada and the U.S., they're actually uh, lower. So the market's been grappling with two opposing forces, the flight to safety bid on the one hand and the inflationary impact of surging commodity prices uh, on the other. Now, given the unique situation of the uh, Russian invasion, where unlike in uh, previous uh, oil kind of conflicts back to 1970, there is you know, now a tail risk that it could lead to direct uh, U.S. or NATO conflict with Russia, um, which means that it's not really that surprising that the flight to safety bid is winning out for now. And I struggle to see how this is going to go away uh, anytime soon, regardless of how high uh, commodity prices go, at least until the situation with Russia uh, significantly uh, de-escalates. So, you know, there is, you know, a number of places where we think there's fundamental misalignments in some markets, such as uh, Canada five-year, five-year swap rates or 10-year cash rates being uh, too high versus the U.S. or too much priced into the front end of the Canada curve, uh, but adding or initiating risk in these trades uh, probably needs to wait until volatility and risk premia uh, starts to decline. And similarly, from a tactical uh, perspective, um, you know, positioning for reversals and some things that have moved a lot in recent weeks, such as the flattening in the twos fives curve or the twos fives uh, tens fly in Canada, uh, that probably needs to uh, wait for another day uh, also. Uh, so with that, uh, over to Tom to tell us about the uh, FOMC meeting next week, uh, the path beyond, and whether the Russia situation could derail the tightening cycle. Thanks, Jason. Uh, so, you know, I think, look, uh, for, for the Fed next week, uh, you know, it's, it's automatic pilot. I mean, wh when it 
ever seen a setup. Uh, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've never seen an FOMC meeting preempted by a Fed chair speaking out of testimony. I mean, we know exactly what's going to happen next week. I think he's been pretty clear about that. Um, I think he's also been pretty clear about his intentions beyond the March meeting. He wants to keep on raising rates. Uh, I mean, kept on talking about, con- you know, sort of consecutive meetings <clears throat> or successive rate hikes, excuse me. And, you know, we take that to mean that um, really the, they have sort of blinders on right now as it relates to inflation. And, look, if, if that's the focus, if that is the lone focus, um, then, yes, we think inflation will remain elevated for uh, the next handful of months, uh, particularly at the headline level. We put out a daily deck yesterday that it basically showed, um, you know, sort of what the impact is going to be um, from, uh, from not, not just from energy but from food prices as well. But, but I think what we have to keep in mind is there's also an economic hit from this. Um, and, you know, we showed that from an energy perspective, right now today, just snapshot today, you're looking at about a percentage point drag from the rise that we've seen in, in energy prices at, at, at this point. And, and I think, and again, something else we've highlighted in other daily decks, just keep in mind, the low-end the low consumer is feeling the pinch from the drawdown and all of that excess liquidity that we've been highlighting. Um, uh, you know, wage pressures, we think, are actually going to start slowing to some extent. I, I think the, the past payroll report, um, the underlying detail, we're, we're pretty useful in that regard. If you look at the small business survey, um, which we, find, we got the full report today, I think there's some additional signs there. So the Fed is going to be raising rates um, in, in the context of higher inflation, but also in the context of economic activity that is, that is slowing down now. Um, so uh, we think they're in a really tricky spot. Uh, we, have no, we, we don't doubt their resolve um, that they do want to try to sort of you know, push this hiking cycle along um, for as long as they can, but um, they're going to bump, bump up against some of these more meaningful headwinds that, that we've been highlighting, not the least of which is you've already lopped off a percentage point from growth, just given what we've seen thus far from an energy price perspective. Um, well, with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Blake. Okay, great. Um, Thank you, Tom. Uh, So, Blake, over to you on uh, funding stresses and the Treasury market. Yeah, uh, you know, first, just a real quick on the on the on Treasury markets. I mean, this is a very difficult time, I think, to have a directional, um, you know, rate view or curve view. Um, I think, you know, both there's a lot of uncertainty about the outcome. Um, You know, you have to have some kind of view of how this ends. You're at high risk of of kind of tape bombs hitting, um, you know, hitting at any given time. Um, and then even if you have that right, that piece right, um, you know, I think we've been seeing some very interesting movements in markets that don't always align uh, with the, the, the macro direction, um, you know, of the, of the headline. So I think you have to not only have a view about the outcome, but then also have to, you know, be right about which way the market's going to react to that news. So very difficult time. I, I think, you know, for the most part, um, you know, you have to stay very nimble, uh, very short-term tactical positions, things with kind of cap downside, you know, very tight stops. Um, but I do think, and this is kind of to what Tom's saying, I think longer run, though, um, you know, at some point, you know, th- in this year, we still get back to a point where, uh, you know, higher rates and flatter curves are, are still the correct move. Um, you know, and I think longer term, uh, those kind of positions for people who can kind of withstand um, this near-term stress, um, you know, that's the right way to be, be positioned. Um, I think at this point, you know, you, we don't fully buy recession or full, you know, full-blown stagflation theme. Um, you know, if anything, I think uh, the slowdown Tom was talking about almost kind of reinforces our original Fed view coming into this year, which was um, for, you know, in, uh, a more longer, more gradual hiking path. I think what this has done has really taken off the table, this kind of fast and furious shock and awe, 
um, you know, very quick rate hikes that, that quickly burn off and, and, and turn into a cutting cycle. Um, I think what we're going to see is that um, as we get out of this, you know, the Fed is able to still move accommodation. It's just going to happen at a, a more gradual pace. So um, just wanted to say that on, on Treasury markets before I get into the funding piece. Um, but, but now kind of turning to the funding piece, um, you know, we've definitely been seeing signs of stress this week. Uh, Three-month CP, front month for IOS, uh, have both widened out about 20 basis points. Um, you know, overseas um, and euro cross-currency basis, you know, that's traded near negative 40 basis points. Um, you know, these are certainly signs that um, there's some stress going through, but I think at this point it's still more like, uh, you know, modest year-end type of pressure than a full-blown funding crisis like we saw in March of 2020 or, or even something like 2008. Um, so, you know, not, not uh, uh, five alarms here, but um, certainly something to keep an eye on. Um, I think it's worth noting, um, I don't think this is due to any kind of negative supply shock and dollar supply as a direct result of the sanctions. I think coming into this week, there was a lot of angst that, um, you know, Bank of Russia was uh, a participant in providing dollar, dollar funding and that losing them due to the sanctions was going to cause a lot of funding pressure. That's not what I think we're seeing here. Um, I think what we're really seeing uh, is, is one, uh, a surge in demand. I think you know March of 2020 is very fresh in a lot of corporate treasuries, uh, financial treasurers' memories. Um, I think they're bolstering uh, kind of precautionary cash balances. They want to have a lot of cash on hand. This is you know kind of typical hoarding behavior. It's very much like you see uh, all the store shelves go empty ahead of a hurricane, uh, a hurricane prediction. Um, and I think it's even uh, worse with uh, quarter end ahead, um, and also you've got a lot of year-end funding that's been rolling off um, the, the last few weeks of February and, and early March. So I think all of those things have, have led to a big surge in issuance. But I think even on the supply side, um, you know, the, the investors in that paper, the people who provide that dollar funding, um, I think you know, over the last few months there's been a large amount of buying of fixed-rate paper as hikes got priced into the curve. Um, you know, this is because those investors were trying to boost their current income uh, by locking in some of those higher interest rate payments now rather than doing uh, some kind of fixed-rate investment. Uh, many of those positions were underwater coming into this week, and I think um, because of that, and again, with memories of 2020 and how illiquid everything be, you know, became, a lot of those investors had to get bailed out in 2020 by Fed facilities that came in to provide liquidity. Um, I think there's a big hesitance to add. So, um, you know, even though we, we've gotten to levels that look very attractive relative to the last year or so, um, I, I think a lot of the investors in that paper have been hesitant uh, to get involved. The last thing I would say is eyeball reform uh, might also be playing a, a role here. Um, you know, for issuers, I think they're unable to hedge broad funding market risk uh, with new LIBOR risk um, because of eyeball reform. Um, I think that makes them more likely to actually boost their cash, cash position, um, you know, instead of kind of putting on some, you know, perhaps derivative uh, LIBOR positions. They can't do that anymore. And, um, you know, without that kind of hedging tool, I think you're probably more likely to just raise the cash and, and hang on and hang on to it uh, into the potential funding stress. And then on the investor side, um, you know, for anybody investing in SOFR-based products, you can't really rely on the index anymore to compensate for uh, these kind of broad funding market stresses in the way that LIBOR did. And what that means for an investor is that, um, you know, concern, if you're concerned at all about any kind of widening out in funding rates, you have to incorporate that into the initial spread. Um, you're not going to get compensated when LIBOR uh, simply moves up. So you really have to think about those funding stresses ahead of time 
get that locked into the spread. And because of this, I think we're seeing uh, those signs of stress and seeing widening out of, of, of spreads at the very front end much more um, aggressively and a bit earlier than we would have if we were still living in a, in a solely LIBOR world. So a few things to think about, uh, and we'll definitely be keeping an eye on those funding conditions uh, over the next week or so. And that's it for me. Okay, thanks, Blake. Um, over to Simon on Bank of Canada and quantitative tightening. Hi, everyone. Uh, so last week we saw the bank hike on uh, strong fundamentals. So uh, on the growth side, uh, Q4 had printed earlier in the week, uh, plus 6.7% annualized, so a bit above expectations, but uh, also a very strong initial look at, at Q1 with the January GDP now cast in positive territory despite, despite uh, Omicron uh, in the month. Uh, but more so, inflation is the, the primary concern from the bank moving higher, and the bank also highlighted increased concerns around medium-term expectations de-anchoring. Not that that has happened yet, but that there are increased risks there. And they continue to see a series of hikes emphasizing that they're not, it's not a one-and-done scenario. Uh, we have three more hikes this year in our forecast with upside risk to this, um, so three to four, so still below uh, market is priced. For QT, QT details, uh, Governor Macklem discussed these in the Associated Economic Progress Report, uh, signaled a near-term move on this, saying that was the next logical step now that they have lifted off, and we're looking for uh, April timing for this alongside another 25 basis point hike at that meeting. And what QT should look like, end of secondary market purchases, the governor was quite clear on this. Uh, in the progress report. Uncertain on option purchases. These have already been reduced in the reinvestment phase, but uh, he noted that they may keep a small amount for technical or market functioning reasons, or they may decide to eliminate them altogether. So that's something we'll probably only find out at the meeting itself. In terms of trades, uh, we still like swap spread tightening over the medium term, but as has been mentioned, uh, wider funding spreads for OIS uh, has taken a hit, and we were, have been stopped out of our 10-year swap spread tightener trade. We also think off-the-run long look too cheap here, and we don't think QT should be as negative for them as is being priced. In terms of direct comments on Russia-Ukraine, uh, the bank really was focused on upside inflation risks, given where that inflation is already higher. That's where they need to be focused on. But they also noted uh, global growth and supply concerns. And I'd also add that uh, Canada is an exporter of many many of the commodities that have seen price increases of late. So that's kind of an additional factor for Canada around an improvement in terms of trade that, that uh, needs to be taken account of. And that's it for me, and I'll flip it back to Jason. Thank you for joining us today here on Macro Minutes. We'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Jason Daw, and I look forward to seeing you next time. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.